A new Justice Department report finds the police response to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, was riddled with failures. It's Friday, January 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Congress averts a government shutdown by passing another short-term funding bill. Also, the Republican presidential campaign shifts to New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley has been polling relatively well. Unlike Iowa, there's a real contest going on here, and it's not a contest between second and third place. It's a contest for whether Haley can break through and actually win this thing. And this hour, how Harvard student newspaper The Crimson became the go-to source for breaking news in a season of campus controversies. People pay attention to Harvard nationally because it's Harvard. But people started paying attention to the Crimson because our reporting was stuff that nobody else had. Cloudy in the 20s today with a chance of snow this afternoon. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There won't be a shutdown of federal agencies tonight. NPR's Giles Snyder reports Congress passed a stopgap spending bill over objections from hardline Republicans. No chaos, no spectacle, and no shutdown. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is warning that a shutdown could still happen. As we speak, there's still a loud contingent of hard-right rabble-rousers who amazingly believe that causing a shutdown is somehow a good thing if it gets them what they want. The stopgap measure that extends current spending levels into March overwhelmingly passed the Senate. The House then gave it final approval by a vote of 314 to 108, with most of the opposition coming from more conservative Republicans who are seeking deep spending cuts. The bill is the third recent temporary measure aimed at keeping the government going. It's attended by Congress time to work out differences over a full-year spending plan. Trial Snyder, NPR News. The White House says the Biden administration is canceling student loan debts for another 74,000 borrowers. The cancellation amount is worth about $5 billion. In a statement, President Biden says some of the borrowers have been in repayment for at least 20 years, but have not been able to satisfy their debts. Former President Donald Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn a ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court. The state judges disqualified him from the Colorado presidential primary ballot. They cited the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, saying his actions around January 6th amounted to insurrection. Colorado's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold agreed. There is clear language in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment about when elected officials or anybody who swears to uphold the Constitution engage in insurrection. Uh, it would be equally chaotic to not uphold the Constitution in this case. She spoke to CNN. There are efforts underway in 30 states to disqualify Trump from ballots. The Federal Emergency Management Agency will overhaul its disaster assistance program. From member station KYUK, Emily Schwing reports this is in response to an uptick in extreme weather events brought on by climate change. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says the changes that will take effect at the end of March are some of the agency's most sweeping in the past two decades. We listened to the criticism we received from stakeholders as well as from the media, and we took it as a challenge. And we wanted to be big and bold. So that's what we did. Changes to FEMA's individual disaster assistance program are aimed at streamlining the application process and relieving the financial burden for disaster survivors. Chriswell says the changes are timely as climate change driven natural disasters and extreme weather continue to batter communities across the United States. For NPR News, I'm Emily Schwing in Anchorage.
You're listening to NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Public school students in Newton don't have class today. Teachers in the district voted to strike yesterday after more than a year of contract negotiations. The teachers' union says about 98 percent of members voted in favor of the walkout. The union is at odds with the mayor over school funding. The mayor's office says it's committed to a new contract and a strike is bad for students. Governor Healy wants to jumpstart literacy with a new initiative. She hopes the literacy launch will rebuild the state's approach to teaching reading. As WBWAR's Max Larkin reports, the plan is to take promising local programs statewide. Recent test scores suggest that a long-term pivot away from phonics has set back reading progress in Massachusetts. Healy proposes a five-year investment to change that. Patrick Tutwiler, the state's secretary of education, says they hope to build on changes that have already made a difference in some districts. We are addressing it uh, sort of on all ends, making the curriculum materials available, providing the professional development, making sure that schools of education are also training uh, aspiring teachers in the evidence-based approach. The Literacy Launch Program would begin with a $30 million investment this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says her office may take legal action against the town of Milton if residents vote down a proposed zoning change. Residents vote next month on a new policy that would allow for denser housing development. It's meant to bring Milton into compliance with the state's new MBTA communities law. Town leaders approved the new plan last month. It's 7.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. The Bruins are celebrating a big win over Colorado. Last night, the team outscored the Avalanche 5-2. It was a hat trick for right-wing David Pasternak, who scored three out of five goals. The Bees now have the night off before taking on the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. The Celtics will try to extend their winning streak at the Garden to 21 games tonight. They take on the Denver Nuggets at 7.30. Cloudy today with highs in the upper 20s. There's a chance of snow this afternoon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has your latest forecast. Well, some flurries and light snow is going to be moving in late this morning and afternoon. It's a minor event here, so honestly, maybe a coating in the city of Boston, but there may be as much as an inch or two for the South Shore and Cape Cod by the time the day is done, with some road treatments necessary and some slick spots that may result, especially through early evening there. Otherwise, it's all about the cold. It comes in this evening and tonight we drop into the teens and single digits north and west of Boston. The wind chill is going to go sub-zero and will stay there through tomorrow morning. Highs don't get out of the low 20s tomorrow with the wind chill in the single digits and teens. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Biden entered the White House on a promise to change America's relationships with the world after a Donald Trump presidency. America is back. Diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy. In the nearly three years since Biden made that speech at the State Department, 
Russia invaded Ukraine, Hamas attacked Israel, and Israel began its punishing months-long response in Gaza. And most recently, the U.S. began striking at Houthi targets in Yemen in retaliation for their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. The Houthis say they won't stop until Israel stops its attacks on Gaza. So has a president who promised to put diplomacy first now become defined by wars. William Wexler is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, now the Senior Director of the Rafiq Hariri Center and Middle East Programs at the Atlantic Council, and he joins us this morning from Bahrain. Good morning, William. Good morning. Well, I was thinking about this question on whether Biden is now a president defined by war when he redesignated the Houthis as a terrorist group this week. Because one of the first things he did when he talked about diplomacy being at the center of U.S. foreign policy is reverse the Trump era designation of the Yemeni Houthis so that aid could get to people dealing with famine there. Now he's redesignated them. There are the strikes on the Houthis in the last week or so. Does this all indicate a pivot in strategy by the Biden administration? I don't think so, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I see the Biden administration um, putting diplomacy first, but doing it in the context of a whole of government approach to national security. And part of that government are tools like the military and tools like the Treasury sanctioning authorities. We've seen that in Ukraine. We saw that uh, in dealing with Al Qaeda. And we're seeing that now dealing with the Houthis. Now, the Biden administration has been drawn into the Middle East in a way that maybe the focus hadn't been planned. I mean, how much of this did Biden just have to deal with? I mean, he's he's a president that has had to deal with now at least two wars. By my count, Biden is the fifth straight president who came into office wanting to do less in the Middle East and spend less time on the Middle East than his predecessors. Mm. And every single one of them leaves office um, realizing that they indeed had to spend disproportionate amount of time to this relatively small amount of the globe. And the reason is quite simple. It's U.S. interest. It's U.S. interest in freedom of navigation. It's U.S. interest in energy. It's U.S. interest in relative uh, security and stability in uh, uh, in a critical region that 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 matters to many people outside the region. So that approach of trying to disengage, I mean, has that proven a failure if the U.S. keeps getting drawn in? Should there be a generally different approach? The The United States doesn't have any option other to, than to stay engaged in the Middle East. The question is always how you stay engaged. I mean, just to put uh, one fact in front of your audiences, there are eight maritime checkpoints in the entire world um, that are critical to world trade that we all depend on for, for our livelihoods in one way or the other. Um, one is in Europe, one is in the Western Hemisphere, one is in Africa, and one is in East Asia, but four are in the, are in the small area where Asia meets Europe meets Africa that we call the Middle East. Yeah. And let's talk about isolation, though. I mean, Biden was very much speaking in 2021 about reestablishing relationships with allies. This war between Israel and Hamas, though, has it made the U.S. more isolated in the region because of Biden's stance? It's um, it's definitely posed challenges. There's no question about that. Um, Biden, in my view, deserves credit for the uh, 
the strength of his position and the consistency of his position across his entire career, uh, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. um, but it also demonstrates the centrality of U.S. diplomacy. Um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken was recently in the region meeting with virtually every country that's relevant to this um, to this to, to this issue. And um, and those meetings are some of the most important diplomacy that's happening around the war right now. William Wexler is the senior director of the Rafiq Hadidi Center and Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. White evangelical Christians show no signs of backing away from former President Donald Trump. That appears to be at least one takeaway from this week's Iowa Republican caucuses, where the former president won a decisive victory over several challengers. And as NPR Sarah McCammon reports, evangelicals could once again be critical to determining the outcome of the general election. Shelley Burrow has been a Trump supporter since his first Iowa caucus in 2016. She's also an evangelical Christian. Here's how she talks about Trump's character. Have you read the Bible? What do you mean? Have you read the Bible? Yeah, actually, because many of the people in the Bible were married multiple times, and they didn't always do the perfect thing. In 2016, there was a lot of head-scratching about evangelical support for Trump, given his divorces, allegations of extramarital affairs, and sexual assault, and his insults toward women, immigrants, and others. Burrow looks past all that. People aren't perfect. God is perfect. She also disregards the 91 state and federal criminal charges Trump is facing, including trying to overturn the 2020 election. She says they're illegitimate and she doesn't think they'll stick. Around 8 in 10 white evangelicals supported Trump in the general election in 2016 and again in 2020 when he lost to President Biden. Some defended those votes as a binary choice between Trump, who would advance goals like restricting abortion, and a Democrat who would not. But this year, according to CNN entrance polls, more than half of white evangelicals in Iowa still chose Trump, even when they had several other options. Many, like Iowa State Representative Brad Sherman, who's also an evangelical pastor, see Trump's harsh style as an asset. Yeah, he's brash and he's a fighter. That's who we need right now in the political arena and the political atmosphere that exists. You've got to be tough. White evangelicals find themselves in a paradoxical moment, wielding outsized power in American politics because of their grip on the Republican Party. But their numbers and cultural influence are declining as the country becomes less religious and more racially diverse. Samuel Perry, a sociologist at the University of Oklahoma, says even with recent victories like the overturning of the abortion rights decision Roe v. Wade, many still see themselves as underdogs in a culture war. And they believe that Trump is the guy who has in the past and continues to promise to fight for them. Since Trump's rise, Perry says the word evangelical has taken on an increasingly political meaning versus its religious one. The conservative Trump-supporting faction of evangelicalism, I think, has laid claim successfully to the evangelical kind of space in a way that if you don't fit in that and that you don't feel like all of that term represents now uh, is you, then you back away from that. But Perry says most of those who still identify as evangelicals show no signs of softening their support for Trump. 
Still, moving even a relatively small number of those voters could make a big difference in November. Doug Paget is executive director of Vote Common Good, which works to persuade evangelicals and Catholics to support progressive candidates and policies. His group will be heavily focused on swing states this year. Because moving 3% of evangelicals away from voting for Donald Trump on Election Day makes it, by our estimates, impossible for him to win in those states. That's assuming Trump becomes the Republican nominee. For now, all eyes are on next week's primary in New Hampshire, a state with fewer evangelical voters and more moderates who may be somewhat more open to another candidate. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. British pop singer Zayn Malik got famous singing with the boy band One Direction. Obviously, One Direction sang in English, but Malik is now the talk of South Asia after singing in Urdu on a song called Tuhe Kaha. The track is a collaboration with the Pakistani band Or. This isn't Malik's first time singing in Urdu, but it's his most successful attempt. This is by far the most fluent we've ever heard Zayn speaking his mother tongue. Harun Rashid is a presenter with the BBC's Asian Network. Like Malik, he's of Pakistani descent and says he gets why so many Urdu speakers love this song. People are celebrating that he's drawing attention to what is a very beautiful poetic language. To see those artists acknowledge your country, your language, your music scene is a real moment of pride. Tuhe Kaha was already a hit in Pakistan and South Asia before Malik jumped on the remix or released the song last summer and it got more than 100 million streams on Spotify. But the original didn't blow up in the West. I do think that with Zayn collaborating on this song, it has reached those places. Or hasn't made a name for itself outside of Pakistan and South Asia, so getting to work with Malik on the remix is a big deal. An internationally recognized artist is is giving his platform and his voice to three boys from a coastal city in Pakistan that would never have had a platform like this if it wasn't for Zayn. Rashid says these kinds of multinational collaborations are on the rise. A certain Canadian pop star did something similar when he jumped on a Latin pop hit by Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee back in 2017. It's the same sort of Despacito trend that we saw happen a few years ago where it was Justin Bieber who jumped onto Despacito. But to be clear, Spanish, not Bieber's mother tongue. And record labels are cashing in on this trend, but Rashid says Western pop fans have a lot more to learn about Pakistani music. The sounds, the scales, the notes, just the textures of that music are so beautiful. Rashid says Tuhe Kaha is just a little taste of what Pakistani music has to offer. This is NPR News. 
Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of another stopgap funding bill passed by Congress to avert a government shutdown. And former President Donald Trump is urging the Supreme Court to reverse a ruling barring him from the primary ballot in Colorado. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Trump has spent nearly every day this week in New Hampshire. And despite Ron DeSantis finishing second in the Iowa caucuses, Trump's main target has been Nikki Haley. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Bowery Boston presenting the Avit Brothers at the stage at Suffolk Downs on Friday, May 18th. Learn more at theavitbrothers.com and Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible. Like roaches. I'm going to give it to you, wolf spiders. Wait, what? I'm Peter Sagal. We'll probably bend over backwards to make sure actor David Oyelowo wins our game. I mean, he played MLK. Join us for the news quiz that plays it loose. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Overcast today, highs will be in the upper 20s. Late this morning and into the afternoon, we may see some flurries and light snow. Boston will likely just get a coating. The South Shore and Cape Cod make it an inch or two. Tonight, the cold descends as temperatures fall to the low teens. Saturday, mostly cloudy with highs only in the upper teens and wind chill values as low as zero. Sunday, sunny and highs in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Deloitte, advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. For her new film, Ava DuVernay tackled an almost impossible book to adapt, one that spans the globe across centuries. In 2020, Isabel Wilkerson published Cast, a treatise on racism in the United States and how it ties into other countries where skin color doesn't determine the social hierarchy, but still, caste systems exist. Here's how Wilkerson summed it up on WHYY's Fresh Air. I think of caste as the bones and race as the skin. That allows us to see that race is merely the signal and cue to where one fits in the caste system. In the new film Origin, Ava DuVernay focuses on Isabel Wilkerson's research, the steps she took to come to this realization. The movie comes across almost like a crime investigation, which it basically is. It begins with the final day in the life of Trayvon Martin. So you see him in the time before he's stalked 
assaulted and killed by George Zimmerman. And a part of what showing that does is it humanizes him. And it starts to break open this idea of why he was stalked. He is not put in this category of black boy with hoodie looking suspicious in the neighborhood who can be assaulted and, and we look the other way. He is a kid talking to his friend on the phone, buying Skittles. And I think that's really what Isabel is wrestling with, is the way in which he saw himself and what he was actually doing and the way in which he was seen by someone who ascribed a certain caste to him, that he was not worthy of being there, that he was suspicious, who criminalized him because of the color of his skin and what he was wearing. In a scene where Isabel Wilkerson's editor asked her to write a piece about Trayvon Martin and the racism behind his killing, she pushes back. Let's hear that. I don't write questions. I write answers. Questions like what? Like, why does a Latino man deputize himself to stalk a black boy to protect an all-white community? What is that? The racist bias I want you to explore, excavate for the readers. We call everything racism. What does it even mean anymore? It's the default. Right, so wait, so you're, you're saying that, that he isn't a racist? No, I'm not saying that he's not a racist. I'm questioning why is everything racist? And so the idea that Isabel Wilkerson shared with me in our interviews was that this question of why did that happen, because it's not quite racism. It fits into another space that we have to excavate to to get to the root of. And she believes that that root is cast, this organizing people into a hierarchy. So in your movie, Ava Wilkerson goes to Germany and India where visual cues such as skin color weren't used for their caste system. So tell us about what she found in those countries and how they relate back to the U.S. We find her go to Berlin to wrestle with the history there of the Holocaust. And she finds the blueprints that the execution of that horror are built upon were derived from American segregation laws and the subjugation of African-Americans, that Nazi lawyers were actually sent to the United States to study. Those laws and rules and social mores were brought back and integrated into Nazi protocols. We go to India with the character of Isabel as she researches and talks to Dalit scholars, you know, Dalits known by many around the world uh, as the term untouchables, folks that are the lowest of the low caste in India and the ways in which even to this day they are subjugated, terrorized, you know, regarded as less than human in many instances. And so through her travels, she is able to relate these both contemporary and historical analysis back to the African-American condition in the United States. Now, Isabel's investigation was was moved forward in part by her own grief. She experienced, I mean, some really, really rough losses throughout her research process. I mean, why did you choose to keep these these personal parts of Isabel's story in the movie? That came from two years of her graciousness and her generosity in sharing her stories with me and adding that to some of the big aha moments that I had in the book, adding in some research that kind of extended some of the ideas in the book into the visual space and putting that all together in a stew that's a mix of historical drama, contemporary drama, there's surrealism there. Some people say they see a documentary in there. <laughs> um, it's really trying to break the different rules that we're told to follow when we make films, because all I care about is the end result, the emotion, yeah. the connection to this idea. And we tried some different methods to achieve that. 
Now, you didn't have studio backing to make this film. I mean, how were you able to do it? Yeah, we uh, we went a different route. You know, instead of spending two years or three years dragging around all the studios, asking them, hey, you want to make a movie about cast? Uh, which isn't the hot list of topics to explore in Hollywood. We just decided to go a different way and, and really look to like-minded organizations and individuals to hold hands with us. So we um, were able to put together enough money to make this film in 37 days on three continents and to do it our way without studio oversight, without someone saying, oh, that's a bit too controversial. Don't say that. Don't show this. These folks gave us the freedom to express ourselves in a way that we needed. You know, your films give people a lot to think about. I wonder, have, do you ever want to do something, I don't know, like a comedy or something maybe you've been dying to do, but maybe you feel like, I don't know, I don't know if people expect that out of me. Oh, it's so interesting. I, I hear that question. The first person that popped into my head is Chris Nolan. I don't know if he's ever gotten the question, hey, Chris, do you ever just want to do a comedy? I would have um, asked him. If he'd have talked to no, me, Ava, okay. I would have asked him. Well, yep. well, I need to get him on with you so I can hear his answer. He would have. But he no. probably would have hung up on me, but <laughs> I'm glad you have it hung up I'm yet. I'm not going to hang up on you, no. I, I, I make what I want to make, and if I decide I want to make a comedy, I'll do that. But it's a process. It is a comprehensive, deeply rooted, very intimate process making these films. And for me, you know, my choice is that they matter. You know, some folks make films to make people laugh and entertain, and it's important. For me, I choose to make films that I hope stick to your ribs after you've seen them, a little bit of soul food that maybe get into your bloodstream, that stay in your mind and in your heart, and perhaps even change the way that you see the world. That's writer and director Ava DuVernay. Her new film is called Origin. It's getting nationwide release this weekend. Ava, thanks a lot for spending time with me. I love talking to you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how journalists at Harvard's student newspaper stayed ahead of national news organizations to own the fast-moving story about now former college president Claudine Gay. It's 729. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Artificial turf promises a beautiful green lawn without the maintenance or the water, but the turf won't last forever. A lot of experts are concerned because it's kind of a toxic soup of chemicals in the artificial turf. What to do with mountains of discarded turf next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Wintry weather and cold temperatures are causing more flight delays and cancellations at airports across the U.S. They're being reported in Washington, D.C., New York, and Boston, as well as Detroit, Charlotte, and other cities. The tracking service FlightAware says hundreds of flights are being affected as snow and ice move through the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Northeast. The Republican presidential candidates are continuing to campaign ahead of Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. It follows this week's Iowa caucuses, where former President Donald Trump won easily with more than 50 percent of the vote. NPR's Sarah McCammon says Trump's GOP rival, Nikki Haley, is expecting a much stronger showing in New Hampshire. 
During a CNN town hall in Henniker, New Hampshire, Haley was asked about Trump's recent attacks, including falsely suggesting that she's not eligible to be president because of her parents' immigration history. That's what he does when he feels threatened. That's what he does when he feels insecure. I don't take these things personally. It doesn't bother me. I know him very well, and this is what he does. Trump is leading in New Hampshire polls and won a resounding 30-point victory in Iowa's caucuses this week. Haley, who served as United Nations ambassador under Trump, finished third after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Manchester. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. More than 240 families are currently in the state's emergency shelter system. That's according to the latest report from the Healy administration. It shows the state spent $30 million on shelters over the past two weeks. That puts total spending on the system this fiscal year at nearly $270 million. Officials say most families are living in the shelter system for about a year. Healy blames the long stays in part on a lack of work authorizations for migrants. The mayor of Newton is criticizing a decision by local teachers to go on strike today. The move means students won't have class. Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller says the strike will be harmful to students and parents who rely on schools for child care. Members of the teachers' union say talks broke down after more than a year of contract negotiations. Newton teachers have worked without a contract since August. A photo by filmmaker and artist Steve McQueen called Lynching Tree will go on view at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum tomorrow. McQueen took the photo over 10 years ago while scouting locations for his award-winning film, 12 Years a Slave. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. Lynching Tree shows an old oak in New Orleans. This tree and others like it were the site of over 4,000 estimated lynchings in the U.S., Boston Foundation President Lee Pelton co-curated the exhibit at the Gardner. We can contemplate emotionally and intellectually the legacy of lynching. And that's why, to me, that's what this exhibit is about, facing uncomfortable truths, because that's where change happens. Lynching Tree is on view through February 4th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. The Bruins outscored the Colorado Avalanche by three goals last night. Final score at the Garden was 5-2. to two. The team now has the night off before skating with the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. The Celtics take on the Denver Nuggets tonight at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. Highs in the upper 20s today, and it'll be cloudy. Flurries and light snow might start late this morning, and there's a chance of snow this afternoon. Just a coating is expected for Boston, while the South Shore and Cape could get up to 2 inches. Then tonight, temperatures plummet to the low teens. Very cold on Saturday. Highs will only be in the upper teens, and the wind will make it feel around zero. Sunday, clear skies. Highs will be in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. 
Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. After dominating in Iowa, Donald Trump has his sights on New Hampshire. The former president will hold a rally tonight in Concord. It's his third event in a week. He's got back-to-back rallies ahead of the Tuesday primary. NPR's Franco Ordonez is covering the campaign. Voters cheered along with former President Donald Trump after his 30-point victory in Iowa's caucuses during his first big rally back in New Hampshire, where he's hoping for a repeat victory on Tuesday. We now uh, have our eyes on a very special place. You know what that place is? New Hampshire. Trump has been here almost every night since Iowa, and he's counting on New Hampshire voters to help put the election to bed. But first, he needs to take out his top rival in the state, Nikki Haley. I do want to talk about Nikki. Nikki Haley came in third in Iowa after Ron DeSantis, but Trump isn't going after the Florida governor. Instead, he's focusing on his former ambassador to the United Nations because she's polling really well here, and he's taken notice. I worked with her for a long time, and she was okay. Not great. She was not great. She's not tough enough to deal with these people. I will tell you that. She's not tough enough. Haley has been trying to hit back, accusing Trump of throwing a temper tantrum. The tip for Tad is just another sign of how critical the Tuesday primary is. It's the Trump and Haley show in New Hampshire this week. That's Jim Merrill, a veteran Republican strategist in New Hampshire. He says Haley has an uphill climb, but she could win if she gets the lion's share of supporters for Chris Christie, the top Trump critic who dropped out of the race. She also needs a big chunk of independent voters who can choose to vote for either party. Unlike Iowa, there's a real contest going on here, and it's not a contest between second and third place. It's a contest for whether Haley can break through and actually win this thing. Trump world is already acting like he's the nominee and wants to move on from the primary. Voters are better off with President Trump financially. Jason Miller, a campaign advisor, says Trump will continue to dominate in New Hampshire like he did in Iowa after winning almost every category of Republicans in the Iowa caucuses. Whether it be uh, closer to the population centers, whether it be more rural, whether it be uh, college educated, whether it be those who do not have college degrees, every possible demographic you can think of, President Trump did very well. Still, what makes New Hampshire so different from Iowa, it's harder to predict and to poll, is that no one knows what its large portion of undeclared voters are going to do, according to John McHenry, a Republican pollster. They could be absolutely disgusted with their choices by Tuesday and say, it doesn't matter who they pick. <laughs> or they could say, I, I've absolutely had it with Donald Trump and I'm going to walk through a blizzard in my bare feet to get to the polls and vote that day. But Fergus Cullen, a former New Hampshire Republican chairman, says that enthusiasm just isn't there for anyone not named Trump. By this stage in past cycles, candidates who were surging were drawing 500-plus people at crowds. Uh, they, they were breaking 1,000. He's talking about past Republican nominees like John McCain and Mitt Romney. He says Haley and DeSantis haven't gotten those kind of numbers. New Hampshire is the last and best opportunity for someone to show that the party wants to move on from him. But what he sees on the ground is a Republican base that doesn't want to move on from Trump. At all. Franco Ordonez, NPR News.
Okay, maybe at this point you've had a little fun testing out AI chatbots, asking them to write a song, maybe you have them write an email for you. But this campaign season, the company behind ChatGPT is banning politicians and lobbyists from using it for official campaign business. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin is here. Uh, Jenna, OpenAI is behind ChatGPT. How's her ban going to work? Good question. Um, so OpenAI is making this pledge to prevent official campaign workers from using ChatGPT. So, you know, presumably if you try to sign up with a company email address, a campaign email address, that won't be possible. In reality, proving someone's actually using a chatbot can be difficult. So it might be difficult to enforce, particularly on a local level. Uh, the Federal Election Commission is trying to do their own thing. They're looking at ways to regulate AI-generated images, what's called deep fakes and political ads. They say that hopefully by the summer before the 2024 election, they'll have done that. On the state level, some states have passed laws requiring campaigns to disclose any use of AI in advertisements. Why is uh, the company asking campaigns not to use this bot? So OpenAI is basically saying, you know, while we figure out what threats this might pose to democracy, we figure out potential problems, we want you to not use it in campaigns. To be clear, it's one of several companies, and this is the first to take this stand. When the, cool, the tool was released, it was still in beta or test mode. It was designed with certain guardrails to prevent people from doing something bad with it, you know, like hacking. But people have found all kinds of ways around that. To use it for something as important as elections, it could pose all kinds of potential problems. What kind of problems are we talking about? So there could be inaccurate or misleading information from these ChatGPT bots. Artificial intelligence like ChatGPT learns based on what information it's given, and that access is limited. It can make mistakes, it can be biased, Plus, it you know makes it easier to craft better phishing emails, for example. I've talked to Jen Easterly. She's the director of the Department of Homeland Security Cyber Agency, CISA, a little bit about this. She says that AI will make it easier for bad guys to pump out better fake content more easily and for cheap. And, and what are the campaigns saying about all this? I spoke to Stephen Boyce. He's a cybersecurity expert who advises federal and local campaigns on these kinds of issues. He's seen this issue moving really fast. You know, in all transparency, before ChatGPT came about, th there was little to no talk around AI. It, it was kind of like a distant emerging threat. Once ChatGPT was released, it, it really re reared its head in terms of the discussions certainly here in, here in Washington. Now he says when he talks to campaigns, this issue comes up almost every single day. So, I mean, does he have any advice? Yeah, it's a difficult problem. This will probably be one of the first major campaigns where generative AI is so convincing it seems real. It's going to take a lot of transparency to make sure voters know that information is real, where the data is coming from. Well, local lawmaker in Michigan, uh, Rep. Penelope Cernoglu, she played an AI-generated version of President Biden congratulating her on a new bill to combat AI-generated disinformation. Take a listen. Hi, Representative Cernoglu. Uh, it's your buddy, Joe. I really like your bill that requires disclaimers on political ads that use artificial intelligence. No more malarkey. Uh, as my dad used to say, Joey, you can't believe everything you hear. Not a joke. By the way, this statement was created using artificial intelligence. So again, not a real <laughs> oh, wow. President Biden, but it's pretty convincing. It really shows the possibilities of how these tools can be abused. That is NPR's The Real, Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, thanks. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Israeli authorities permitted a rare anti-war protest in Tel Aviv yesterday that drew several hundred people and reflected some of the divisions in Israel. We may see some light flurries starting late this morning, and there's a chance of snow this afternoon, but it shouldn't amount to more than a coating in Boston. The South Shore and Cape might get up to two inches, though. Temperatures descend to the low teens tonight, and it stays dangerously cold tomorrow. It'll only be in the upper teens, and the wind will make it feel around zero. The sun comes out on Sunday, and it'll be in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946 and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Taproom in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com boston. The Federal Reserve Bank is out with its latest beige book. That's a snapshot of current economic conditions. One local economist says there's not a lot of exciting news for the Boston area, but, quote, boring is good right now. WBUR's Fausto Menard explains. The Fed says employment in the region was relatively flat. Manufacturing sales were down and prices increased modestly. But wages and retail revenues were up slightly. Rod Matamity with the UMass Donahue Institute says people feel much better about the economy now than they did a year ago. That the only way to bring down inflation, the only way to bring price levels under control, it was inevitably going to end in a recession. But it seems like more and more as time progresses that we aren't heading in that way. Matamity says that with interest rates still high, people may continue to hold off on big purchases, but they seem willing to spend some money. He says that could help with the so-called soft landing the Fed was going for. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The head of the group that markets and promotes Boston as a convention destination says the city needs more hotel rooms in the seaport. The leader of the Boston Convention Marketing Center says there are fewer than 2,800 rooms near the convention center during the winter. He says that sometimes customers are looking for up to 7,000 rooms and that can drive their business to other cities. The state convention center authority is considering allowing more hotels in the neighborhood. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Spring term begins at Harvard next week. The university spent much of the fall enveloped in a series of controversies surrounding now former President Claudine Gay. The saga drew national attention and cable news outlets often turned to one student organization. The Harvard Crimson, which is the school's student paper, first broke this news about Gay's dissertation. And those students in an interview with the Harvard Crimson, Claudine Gay told the paper that she's sorry and that her congressional. We have breaking news just into CNN. Harvard President Claudine Gay is set to resign today. That is according to the Harvard Crimson. Let's go straight. WBUR Suvan Liu reports on how student journalists at the Harvard Crimson stayed on top of the fast-moving story and became an essential go-to source. 
In mid-December, Harvard juniors Miles Herzenhorn and Claire Yuen were up late at the campus library studying for finals. The two Harvard Crimson reporters were also chasing a scoop. Would the university's highest governing board speak out in support of President Claudine Gay? By 4 a.m., they had confirmation. Their story about the corporation unanimously backing Gay posted to the Crimson site well before any media competitors. We were still awake at some pretty obscene hours of the night. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of sleep that night. It was it was a bit brutal, but it was worth it. As reporters who covered President Gay and the university's top administration, this was the biggest story for us. It was just one of many big stories that have played out at Harvard, culminating with Gay's resignation just six months into office. She faced pressure to step down following backlash to her responses at a Republican-led congressional hearing about campus speech and anti-Semitism and amid mounting allegations of plagiarism in her early academic work. The Crimson was often the first to report developments along the way. In an interview with the paper, Gay apologized for her congressional testimony. The Crimson uncovered new angles, like the prep Gay received from lawyers ahead of the hearing and her request to submit corrections to her 1997 dissertation after plagiarism claims widened. Those details help the Crimson's reporting stand out, says Herzenhorn, now the paper's managing editor. We have a perspective as student journalists at Harvard that really nobody else has. People pay attention to Harvard nationally because it's Harvard. But people started paying attention to the Crimson because our reporting was stuff that nobody else had. I was reading the Crimson every single day uh, during this controversy. The Crimson was indispensable. Former CNN anchor host Brian Stelter, who is now a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, says the Crimson's sourcing and proximity to the events give it an advantage. The Crimson reporters are basically covering their mayor or their governor. So it makes perfect sense that they'd be all over this and be leading the way. Stelter says the Crimson's coverage shows the benefits of having reporters live in the places they're covering. Claire Yuen, now an associate managing editor, says while the gay story might have reached farther, the Crimson's ambitions remain the same. The national spotlight and the national media picking up our coverage doesn't necessarily change anything for us. Our mission has always been to cover Harvard and its community and the surrounding metro area to the best of our ability. Most of the Crimson staff was home for winter break when Gay resigned on January 2nd. They planned coverage remotely and put together a special edition of the paper by the following morning. Elias Shizgal, a junior and associate managing editor, says the Crimson staff has also been processing these events as members of the campus community. What's been going on at Harvard has definitely been surreal to live through. It's a really intense and historic moment to Harvard, and that's not lost on us as students in addition to being journalists. As students return to campus for the spring semester, covering the leadership transition will be very much a priority, says Herzenhorn. This is still a moment of extraordinary crisis for the university and one in which there are deep divisions on campus. So those are all stories that the Harvard Crimson needs to continue to tell. And over the next few months, national media will likely be paying attention. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Suvan Lee.
Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes on Tuesday. Live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries starts at 7 on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. Coming up at 820 here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the story of a student at a rural Maine elementary school who decided to start wearing suits to school. The idea took off and led to Dapper Wednesday. It's 750. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org/summer. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture, and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at wbur.org legacy. One young Ecuadorian migrant walked for 21 days to escape drug violence in his country. What awaits him in the U.S.? That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Donald Trump is urging the Supreme Court to reverse a ruling barring him from the primary ballot in Colorado. President Biden is canceling student loan debts for about 74,000 borrowers, including those who've been in repayment for decades. And public school teachers in Newton are going on strike today following more than a year of contract negotiations. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. More than 30 years ago, rioters destroyed a historic mosque in the holy Hindu city of Ayodhya. This month, a new Hindu temple will be consecrated on its grounds with Prime Minister Narendra Modi in attendance. It'll be an event of enormous political and religious significance for India, and it comes just weeks before a crucial election. NPR's Dia Hadid went to see the temple and talk to people about what it means to them. I'm walking into one of the most controversial places in India. So we're entering through the first checkpoint. There's multiple metal detectors, facial recognition technology. We're on a rare tour of the Ram Temple. It's a sprawling structure, columns and arches, approached by stone stairs. Dozens of workers file past and shout, Jai Shri Ram. Victory to Lord Ram. Ram is one of the most beloved Hindu deities. And that chant has become a rallying cry for Hindu nationalists. People who believe India should serve its Hindu majority and not be a secular country. Thousands of rioters chanted this more than three decades ago as they tore down a 500-year-old mosque that once stood here. The mosque's destruction triggered deadly violence. In India, more than 2,000 people, mostly Muslims, were killed. In Pakistan and Bangladesh, mobs turned on Hindus. The rioters believed the mosque was built on the birthplace of Lord Ram. That claim is about a century old, but it picked up steam as a Hindu nationalist party known as the BJP rallied around the issue. That party has ruled India for nearly a decade now, led by the popular Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's seeking a third term in power. 
He's long vowed to build a temple for Lord Ram where the mosque once stood. He even laid the foundation stone himself in 2020 after the Supreme Court handed over the site to Hindu litigants. Now, just four years later, it's going to be consecrated on January 22, even though it's not ready. One, two, three, four, four large cranes, just heavy building machinery everywhere. Monkeys swing off the scaffolding. Critics say the rush is so Modi can be seen doing this ahead of elections in spring. Opening this in January is critical for them to go to elections with this feather in their cap. So it's a very big actually launch pad for the elections. Valai Singh is the author of a book on Ayodhya. It is going to mobilize the support that the BJP party has. So that's one simple reason why it seems to be a rush to inaugurate the temple, even though it's not fully complete. Already, many residents praise Modi for transforming this town. There's a new mall, a new bridge linking to the new airport, a refurbished railway station, all to serve an expected influx of pilgrims. Nearby, Usha Pandi and her family take selfies near a wall of marigold flowers that conceals a slum. She tells us Modi's done a lot of good. Ayodhya isn't a dump anymore. She says, finally, the Lord Ram has a home, the temple that's being built in his honour. Now she hopes Modi will create jobs for women like her. Down the road, Muhammad Azam Qadri sits with friends outside a crumbling mosque. He says all this new development isn't for them, Muslims. One in six Indians are Muslims, some 200 million people. He believes the government wants Muslims to leave Ayodhya. He refers to the land that the court ordered the government give to the Muslim community to build another mosque after rioters destroyed their historic house of worship. It's 13 miles from here. Muslims pray five times a day. If they wanted to worship there, he says, they'd have to leave town. Dear Hadid, NPR News, in the northern Indian town of Ayodhya. A new report from the American Cancer Society estimates there will be a record number of new cancer cases this year. Dr. Bill Dehut is the chief scientific officer for the Cancer Prevention Group. This is the first time that we've ever seen, you know, the number going over the two million person barrier. But listen to this. It's younger people than you might think who are getting the diagnosis more these days. The portion of cancer diagnosis for folks over the age of 65 has fallen while the proportion between the ages of 55 and 64 has risen significantly. The study finds colorectal cancer is now the leading cause cancerous death among men under 50. For women in that age group, it's the second only to breast cancer. Dehut says it's unclear why younger patients are dealing with more cancer cases. It does sound like some sort of environmental, broadly speaking, exposure. We don't know what that is. We know there's a strong link with obesity and cancer, but it's not quite clear what about obesity actually causes cancer. 
And doctors worry about the ability of young people to fight off cancer because they're often uninsured or they have caregiving and family obligations that can get in the way of getting treatment. Dehad says it's concerning and screening is key. One third of people diagnosed with colorectal cancer before they reach 50 years old have a family history or some kind of genetic predisposition. Doctors advise that they should start screening for potential problems long before their 45th birthday. If you had somebody in your family with colorectal cancer who's diagnosed when they're 43, that means around age 33 you should start screening. There's some good news in this report. The latest data indicates the overall cancer mortality rate continues to drop in the U.S. That's because, well, one, cancer screenings are better, and two, a lot of people have kicked the cigarette to the curb. Basically, fewer people are smoking. And three, cancer treatment is now more effective than in years before. There are things you can do. Follow the screening recommendations, and if your risk is greater than average, you know, be screened earlier on. All right, so you heard the doctor there. This is your reminder to talk to your doctor about your family history of cancer and find out when you should begin screening. Sounds like the sooner the better, just to be safe. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman, Ami Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congress votes to avert a shutdown and keep the government funded into early March. It's Friday, January 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israeli authorities permit a rare anti-war protest in Tel Aviv. Also, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects a two-state solution for post-war Gaza, despite President Biden's support for the idea. And some Democrats worry that Biden's position could hurt the party. I do think that there's segments of the Democratic base that will be more and more concerned and disenchanted. And this hour, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump make their cases to New Hampshire voters only days away from that state's presidential primary. Over 70% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. I've been indicted more than Alphonse Capone. You know who Alphonse is? Cloudy in 20s today with a chance of snow this afternoon. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Forecasters say winter storms are still walloping parts of the U.S. Warnings are up from the Midwest to West Virginia to New Jersey. There's a ground stop at Reagan National Airport outside Washington, D.C. In the central U.S., wind chill values are far below zero. In the Pacific Northwest, National Weather Service meteorologist Zach Taylor says another winter storm will bring fresh ice to the region. Overall, the ice accumulation should be relatively on the lighter side, but, uh, you know, anytime you see kind of any kind of ice accumulations on power lines and roads and things like that, it could continue some of the hazardous travel. The tracking site poweroutage.us says more than 100,000 customers in Oregon have lost electricity. Despite the wintry weather in the nation's capital, anti-abortion activists will gather today for their annual March for Life. This began to oppose the Supreme Court's Roe decision legalizing abortion. That decision has been overturned. Sixteen states now severely restrict abortion. 
but data suggests that in the year after Roe was ended, abortions in the U.S. increased. A rift is deepening between Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Biden administration amid the Gaza war. A similar rift is growing in Netanyahu's own war cabinet, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Netanyahu rejects the idea of a future Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Netanyahu said in a press conference, Israel must hold security control over the entire territory, and he rejected the idea of Palestinian sovereignty. In response, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says countries have committed to helping rebuild Gaza after the war only if there's a path to a Palestinian state. Also, a senior official associated with Israel's war cabinet, Gadi Eisenkot, is publicly opposing Netanyahu's claim that continued military bombardment in Gaza is needed to lead to a hostage release deal. He told Israeli TV that only a ceasefire deal can release Hamas's remaining Israeli hostages. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is out of the GOP presidential contest and supporters are looking for another option. NPR's Tamara Keith reports from New Hampshire. They knew he didn't have much of a shot at winning the nomination, but they liked his willingness to take on former President Trump directly and figured Christie would hang on at least through the New Hampshire primary. Now most Christie supporters we spoke to are giving former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley a closer look. That includes Alan Castellano. Well, since Christie is no longer in the race, uh, this is my next choice. Castellano is an independent who voted for Trump in 2016, but fears what it would mean for the country if he's elected again. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. There is no school in Newton today. Public school teachers there approved a strike yesterday after nearly a year of working without a contract. The union says the key issue is higher pay for all members. Mike Schnickelmelge is a teacher and union negotiator. He blames Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller for a lack of funding. Do the right thing and keep Newton a wonderful place to work and learn. You have the money. The choice is on you, Mayor Fuller. Here's how the mayor responded to the strike vote. Education is Newton's number one priority. It's my number one priority, and that's why I've always prioritized the budget of the Newton Public Schools. All of us want a competitive offer for our teachers and a sustainable contract. Even though teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts, there have been several in the last year. Newton is the largest district to see one. Several Massachusetts lawmakers say they are heartened to hear Governor Healy support their idea to create a permanent emergency fund for the state. As climate change brings more heavy rain and extreme weather to the state, advocates say an equitable disaster relief fund is critical. WBUR's Kathleen Masterson has more. Massachusetts doesn't have a permanent disaster relief fund. Senator Joe Comerford proposed legislation to create such a fund after Massachusetts was devastated by flooding last summer. She says in that instance, the legislature issued one-time emergency funds. But these have been one-off responses to a systemic problem. So let's make a system and let's make it fair, transparent, accountable, resourced. Comerford adds... Funds should not just help rebuild, but support construction of more climate-resilient infrastructure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kathleen Masterson. 
There's a new official plan to bring more affordable housing and green spaces to East Boston. The Boston Planning and Development Agency unveiled its East Boston blueprint this week. The agency says the plan is a result of five years of community feedback. The new plan outlines zoning updates that would allow for more development. That includes additional transit options and climate resilience projects. Senator Ed Markey will join other community leaders today to call on Walgreens to keep its Roxbury location open. The retail pharmacy chain plans to close the store at the end of this month. Markey says the closure will leave people in the predominantly black and Latino neighborhood without access to vital health care. It's 807. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It was a hat trick for Bruins right wing David Pasternak last night. He scored three of the team's goals in their victory against Colorado. Final score was 5-2. to two. The Celtics are looking to keep their undefeated streak at home in the Garden alive tonight they play the Denver Nuggets at 7.30. Cloudy today with a chance of snow this afternoon. As WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce explains, it won't amount to much in the Boston area. It's a minor event here, so honestly, maybe a coating in the city of Boston, but there may be as much as an inch or two for the South Shore and Cape Cod by the time the day is done. Temperatures will be in the 20s today. Tonight, the snow tapers off and will drop into the teens uh, with a wind chill making it feel much colder. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with high temperatures in the upper teens. Wind chill values will make it feel like we're in the single digits. Sunday, skies will clear to bring sunshine with highs in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu insists Israel will keep fighting in Gaza, but... As he was making those remarks last night, a few hundred Israelis had a different message in Tel Aviv. NPR's Aya Batrawi was there. This is a sound hardly heard in Israel these days. Chance for peace. We're in the middle of a busy intersection in Tel Aviv. Electric scooters are whizzing by, people are walking their dogs, and bars are open. But this is a country at war in the Gaza Strip only around 45 miles south from where we are. I don't want to see the, the children in Gaza, you know, having such difficulty. That's Abigail Ehrenheim, one of the anti-war protesters. She's also pained by the more than 100 hostages still held in Gaza since the Hamas attacks on October 7th that killed 1,200 people in Israel. Israel's attacks since that day have killed more than 24,000 people in Gaza most of them women and children, according to health officials there. Nearly everyone is displaced and grappling with hunger. Here's Ehrenheim again. My people did it. My government did it. It's my responsibility. This is why I stand here. I want to change this kind of thinking that we are better, that we, we can handle this situation. Protesters held signs that read, only peace will bring security. Another said, stop the genocide. It's a charge Israel now faces at the International Court of Justice, and one that nearly all Israelis vehemently reject, arguing the war is against Hamas, not all of Gaza. 
But this protest of a few hundred, and another one by the relatives of hostages who blocked a main highway last night, reflect divisions within Israeli society about the war and the man leading it, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Cindy Cohen says his right-wing government doesn't want this war to end because then they'd face new elections. Israelis, we want our democratic rights and rights for Palestinians from the river to the sea for all of us. Police in Israel have arrested and beaten protesters in small anti-war rallies, but civil rights lawyers succeeded in getting this one approved. Police are escorting the march. People look on from their balconies. These protesters are a distinct minority here. I see an elderly woman on the sidewalk. She's gobsmacked by the anti-war slogans. When I approach her, she says, I don't want to interview. I'm so angry now, I can't. With this protest? Yes. And the protesters, they carry on. Eya Batrawi, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Netanyahu opposes a Palestinian state in any form. That puts Israel's prime minister in direct conflict with President Biden, who in recent months has repeatedly called for a two-state solution. But Biden has long shown unwavering support for Israel in this war and in his decades-long political career. Today, that stance is being tested. NPR's White House correspondent Asma Khalid has our report. Joe Biden often says his education about the horrors of the Holocaust began around his family's dinner table. It was at that table that I learned that the only way to ensure that could never happen again was the establishment and existence of a secure Jewish state of Israel. He took his first diplomatic trip to Israel in 1973, and it was the start of a lifelong emotional bond. 35 years ago, I said, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist, and I'm a Zionist. Former Middle East negotiator Dennis Ross worked alongside Biden for years. During the height of the Second Intifada, when there were suicide bombs, I traveled to Israel. It was 2002. Ross was at the King David. It's this famous hotel in Jerusalem, but because of all the violence against Israelis, nobody was there. I came down for breakfast, and the room is completely empty except for one table that has two people, and the two people are Joe Biden and Tony Blinken. He asked Biden why he was there. And Biden said, this is precisely the time when I need to be here. It was a message. Israel was not alone. Israel would always have the United States as a friend. It's a message Biden carries till today. But while he has not changed, the world around him has. Aaron David Miller is a former State Department diplomat who advised previous presidents on the Middle East. He says despite calls for a ceasefire from some Democrats, Biden sees a long game. People have asked me repeatedly, he's going to change at some point, right? He's going to pick up the phone, he's going to call Netanyahu, and he's going to say, enough already. My response is, I don't think that moment is going to happen. This has been an emotional gut issue for him from the beginning. Plus, there's the politics at home. I think that the president would be vulnerable to some conservative Democrats and certainly to the Republicans if, in fact, he allowed them to paint him as someone who is not sympathetic enough to what the Israelis have suffered. But some Democrats on the left want Biden to show more sympathy for Palestinians as well. They see Biden hugging Netanyahu and holding back in the way he criticizes the prime minister for massive civilian casualties. Jonah Blank was a foreign policy advisor to Biden for nearly a decade in the Senate. He says his former boss has always preferred to give and receive criticism behind closed doors. 
Joe Biden believes that public criticism is counterproductive uh, and kind of humiliating. Blank said for much of Biden's career, criticism of Israel was political suicide. But the generational politics on this issue are changing. Earlier this month, a Biden appointee in the Education Department resigned. Tarek Habash is a Palestinian-American and says he could no longer work in an administration where he felt his own humanity was undervalued. Habash says he always knew Biden was a strong supporter of Israel, but he's disappointed the president hasn't budged, especially when he's shown he can move on other issues like the invasion of Iraq and abortion. He has changed those perspectives. He has admitted, unlike a lot of other politicians, that, you know, you can be wrong, you can learn from the past and you can learn from your mistakes. And he worries this could all be bad for Democrats. Biden, for his part, says the election is a long way off. This question of electoral consequences is hard to answer a year out, in part because people don't often vote on foreign policy. Nonetheless, I asked Chris Coons about this. He's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Delaware lawmaker is also a co-chair of Biden's re-election bid. Coons and other Biden allies point out the president's support for Israel has largely reflected the majority of the American public. But he also recognizes that a growing number of Democratic voters are alarmed at civilian casualties in Gaza. I think what matters is what happens next. I fully expect that there will be a change. More humanitarian aid, a less intense fight. And significant movement towards regional reconciliation and regional peace. If that doesn't happen over the next couple of months, I do think that there's segments of the Democratic base that will be more and more concerned and disenchanted. The White House has had lots of discussion about normalizing relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia in a grand bargain that they think could lead to long-term peace in the region. But this is contingent on moving toward a state for Palestinians, something that the Israeli prime minister is set against. And that puts Biden in a tough position. He has to navigate Netanyahu and the fractures in his own base in an election year. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A failure that should not have happened. That's how U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland described how police responded to the mass shooting two years ago at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. The Justice Department released a detailed report yesterday reviewing the shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers. The Texas newsroom, Sergio Martinez-Beltran, joins us this morning from Uvalde. Sergio, the DOJ report is a brick, 500 pages long, lots there. Anything at all, though, that grieving families can hold on to for answers? I mean, the biggest takeaway, A, and one of the most heartbreaking ones for the families is the fact that law enforcement agents who responded to the shooting treated it initially as a barricaded subject situation and not as an active shooter. And that's huge because when there is a barricaded subject, police are encouraged to negotiate. But when there's a shooter, police are trained to use all their tools and do whatever they have to do to stop it. But in Uvalde, police retreated for a while after the shooter injured two officers and then waited 77 minutes to confront the shooter and ultimately kill him. Attorney General Mary Garden was in Uvalde and he told families of the victims that their loved ones deserved better. The victims and survivors should never have been trapped with that shooter for more than an hour as they waited for their rescue. Garland said some victims would have survived if law enforcement agencies had followed active shooter protocols, the tactics in place since the Columbine shooter school massacre nearly 25 years ago. And he blamed the botched response on the failed leadership of the incident commander, former Uvalde Schools Police Chief Pita Redondo. Did the Justice Department ID anyone else as responsible for the failed response? 
Besides Arredondo, the report does mention former Uvalde Police Acting Chief Mariano Pargas. The Justice Department says Pargas was not trained to be an incident commander and didn't demonstrate adequate command leadership during the shooting. But the report doesn't name many other names, and that's something that disappointed many of the victim's family members. The fact is there's still deep frustration here with law enforcement. Here's Vincent Salazar, the grandfather of 11-year-old Leila Salazar, who was killed at Rob Elementary. If you cannot serve and protect the people, these were children. All they wanted to do was play. There's no reason this should have happened. They ignored the training that was supposed to be since Columbine, and they ignored it. A key recommendation in the report is following those protocols, like prioritizing taking the shooter out and never treating an active shooter as a barricaded situation. Sergio, you're there. You know how overwhelming the grief is there, and it probably will never end. But has this investigation delivered maybe a little bit of closure, any at all, for the people of Uvalde? I mean, that's a difficult question, and it's when I've asked those who lost a loved one at Rob Elementary, and the answer is no. Kimberly Rubio lost her 10-year-old daughter, Lexi, and you can hear the pain in her voice. I hope that the failures end today and the local officials do what wasn't done that day, do right by the victims and survivors of Rob Elementary, terminations, criminal prosecutions. But family members believe this report is a good step in trying to get some accountability. And they're again calling on lawmakers to end future law enforcement failures by improving police training and passing gun control laws that could help prevent the next mass shooting. Sergio Martinez Beltran is a reporter with the Texas Newsroom. Sergio, nice to hear your voice again. Good to hear you. This is NPR News. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of families in Uvalde, Texas, renewing demands for police to face charges after a scathing Justice Department report about the 2022 school shooting there. And former President Donald Trump is urging the Supreme Court to reverse a ruling barring him from the primary ballot in Colorado. Coming up in 15 minutes, Congress has averted a partial government shutdown by passing another short-term funding bill. We'll look at what's in it. It's 820. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Artificial turf promises a beautiful green lawn without the maintenance or the water. But the turf won't last forever. A lot of experts are concerned because it's kind of a toxic soup of chemicals in the artificial turf. What to do with mountains of discarded turf next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Overcast today, highs will be in the upper 20s late this morning and into the afternoon. We may see some flurries and light snow. Boston will likely just get a coating. The South Shore and Cape might get an inch or two. Tonight, the cold descends as temperatures fall into the low teens. Saturday, mostly cloudy with highs only in the upper teens and wind chill values as low as zero. Sunday, sunny and highs in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. 
From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From BritBox, with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon, Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Martinez. Just 3% of men wear suits to work. That's according to a recent Gallup poll. But in Maine, students at one elementary school are bucking the casual attire trend. Once a week, they get all spiffed up for Dapper Wednesday. Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports it's all inspired by a boy who started wearing a suit to school. Most days, 8-year-old James Ramage has to decide which T-shirt and sweatpants to wear to Chelsea Elementary School. But every Wednesday morning, he opens his closet and makes a different decision. This is all my... I keep all my suits. He has three to choose from. On this day, he selects a black one from his closet. He adds some flair with a bright red holiday-themed shirt, puts on a tie, and tops off his dapper look with a gray fedora. Then he's ready for school. His first stop is the cafeteria to grab breakfast, where he immediately catches attention from a member of the staff. Hi, let me see the shirt. Oh, is it a Christmas one? I love it. Have a good day, buddy. Okay. In his third grade classroom, James is joined by several other boys wearing suits. And for kids who forgot to dress up... Does anybody need a tie in here? Everybody all set? Ed tech Dean Paquette swoops in to hand out bow ties just in time for morning announcements. We don't have very many announcements to make today. Except for it is Dapper Wednesday. We thank everyone who dressed up in a dapper way. Dapper Wednesday is new this year at this rural elementary school in central Maine. The trend began as many do when one person branches out from the mainstream. That was James, who started wearing suits in first grade. He asked for one for his birthday, which posed a bit of a challenge for his mom, Susie Ramage. Uh, where am I going to get one? <laughs> Because it's not something that's very common in this area that they sell like little boy suits. His grandmother bought him one, and when James started wearing it to school, other kids liked the look. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of cool. Including James's friend, Lincoln Belitho. Then I was like, maybe if I got one, me and him could wear a suit like together or something fun every week. Lincoln now has three suits, including an all-white one he's wearing for winter. When the two boys started dressing up on the same day, EdTech Dean Paquette joined them. When I first saw it, it's just that I wanted to support it. That was my big thing as an educator. Here are two young boys that are doing something a little bit different and wanted them to know that they did have support. The trio agreed to wear suits on Wednesdays. They dubbed it Dapper Wednesday. It made the school announcements and other kids started dressing up, including fifth grader Lana Pratt. She's wearing a black skirt and blazer. It makes me feel like fancy, really fancy, like we're in a really great school. James says he feels good when he wears suits, and it's nice to share the experience with other students. When we started wearing it, a bunch of teachers just complimented us, and then more kids get involved and they get complimented. It just keeps on going, and a bunch of people can make, can feel good. It's a great message for James and Lincoln of all the impact they can have on the world just by being themselves. Principal Allison Hernandez says students at Chelsea Elementary stand a little taller on Dapper Wednesday, and the mood at this central main school is a little brighter. For NPR News, I'm Patty White. Now it's time for StoryCorps. 
and hard but loving conversations about how to say what you need to say when the one you love is sick. 66-year-old Conchetta Brown has COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. She uses oxygen to help her breathe, and she came to StoryCorps in San Antonio with her daughter, Nidira. If this was to be your very last conversation, is there anything you want to say to me? I love you, and I'm sorry I have to die, but I have to go, girl. It was good while it lasted. But I must go. You act like it's the ending of a relationship. (laughs) It is. Well, yeah, I guess it is. Because no more mother and daughter. It's just daughter, mother gone. But you won't have to worry about oxygen. I know that's the truth. No more medicine. Oh, no. You just have to slow down. Yeah, I try to do that. And then I forget what I'm doing. Well, don't slow down that much. Oh, well, what about you? What would you do? If this is my last conversation? Yes. Yeah, I would tell you the same thing, that I love you. Do you want to be cremated? Yes. And where you want us to throw you in the toilet, the garbage can? No, you, not you the know. garbage can. We, we're, all just, that, it didn't make no sense to give me... Okay, so <laughs> sorry. Just give me cremated and <laughs> throw me out back? Yeah. <laughs> we could use some soil and, you know, plant oh, a tree. yeah. That would be awesome. Ooh. Something that can give fruit, you know. That can, can give back. Yes, give it back. So for your great-great-grandchild listening to this years from now, is there any wisdom you want to pass on to them? You know, you don't have to be religious to believe in something because religion is what you do every day. And they got a song that say you don't miss your water till your well run dry. That's why you're supposed to treat people kind while they're alive. Yeah. And when you're well dry, you want to see that person again. But it's all over. Yeah. You know, we may do, girl. Eventually, I've got to go. And I know it's going to break your heart. I'll be sad that I'm gone because I won't have you to talk to. But it's going to be all right. I'm going to always be with you here. That's Conchetta Brown with her daughter Nidira in San Antonio. Their StoryCorps conversation is archived in the Library of Congress. In the beginning, you really love me. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. But now that you left This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR's Anthony Brooks explains why Donald Trump is taking aim at Nikki Haley with just four days to go until the New Hampshire primary. It's 8.29. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Airports in Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., and Detroit are among those reporting flight delays and cancellations this morning with more snow and ice falling. Wintry precipitation is moving through parts of the Midwest as well as the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. More than 40 deaths in the U.S. are being blamed on wintry weather of late, including 14 in Tennessee. Court records show Elon Musk and Tesla have paid shareholders tens of millions of dollars as a result of a tweet falsely sent by Musk in 2018 saying he would take the electric car company private. NPR's Bobby Allen says that tweet launched investigations and investor lawsuits. New court records show that Musk and Tesla have completed payments totaling $41 million to Tesla investors as part of a settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC reached the deal after investigating Musk's 2018 tweet in which he wrote that funding was secured to bring Tesla private, pricing each share at $420. The number is slang for marijuana, which Musk often jokes about. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier this month that Tesla board members said privately they were concerned Musk was on drugs at the time of the tweet. After the tweet, there was a trading frenzy, and the Nasdaq temporarily halted Tesla stock, which regulators say cost shareholders millions of dollars. Bobby Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Harvard students begin a new semester Monday with the university's leadership in transition. Claudine Gay's resignation as president earlier this month dominated national headlines, but it was the campus publication that often broke news first. WBUR Suvan Lee has more. Report truthfully and reveal as much information as possible without hurting sources. That's part of the Harvard Crimson's mission. Over the past few months, student journalists sacrificed sleep, exam prep, and even winter break to report stories around Gay's embattled tenure. Gay resigned following backlash to remarks at a congressional hearing about campus anti-Semitism and plagiarism claims in an early academic writing. Junior Miles Herzenhorn, the Crimson's managing editor, says there's plenty ahead to cover. This is still a moment of extraordinary crisis for the university and one in which there are deep divisions on campus. So those are all stories that the Harvard Crimson needs to continue to tell. Harvard has not announced a time frame for selecting a new permanent leader. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Suvan Lee. Newton Public School teachers are off the job today, which means there's no class for students. The teachers' union overwhelmingly voted yesterday to authorize a strike. The group has been without a contract since August. They say negotiations broke down after more than a year. Teachers are at odds with the mayor over school funding. Newton's mayor says she's committed to the schools and calls the strike harmful to students. An important artifact from the Holocaust is going on display in Massachusetts. The American Heritage Museum will exhibit a train car likely used to transport Jewish people and others to concentration camps during the Nazi regime. The artifact will be displayed as part of a Holocaust exhibit at the Hudson Museum. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum, where families play and create together. Make your winter special with a visit to the museum. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. 
The Bruins are celebrating a three-goal win against the Colorado Avalanche. Final score at the Garden was 5-2. to two. The team will take tonight off before skating with the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. The Celtics play the Denver Nuggets tonight at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. Highs in the upper 20s today and it'll be cloudy. Flurries and light snow might start late this morning and there's a chance of snow this afternoon. Just a coating is expected for Boston while the South Shore and Cape could get up to two inches. Then tonight temperatures plummet to the low teens. Very cold on Saturday. Highs will only be in the upper teens and the wind will make it feel around zero. Sunday, clear skies. Highs will be in the upper 20s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Congress has passed another stopgap funding bill, which keeps the lights on in Washington through February. It's the latest in a series of short-term extensions passed by Congress after they failed to pass the year-long bills they were supposed to pass back in September. NPR's Eric McDaniel has been watching it all from the Capitol. Eric, we're kind of getting used to stopgap bills. Uh, Why haven't they passed the full-year spending bill yet? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. For a long time, politics was sort of the art of the possible, right? Compromise was the name of the game, especially in moments like this of divided government. But I'd say over the last 15 years or so, there's been a growing number of Republicans who have sort of a different approach. They'd rather shut down the government entirely than compromise on policies that they feel are insufficiently conservative. And they see bipartisan bills, bills that you pass with Democratic votes as as failures. And in a Congress with a wafer-thin Republican majority like this one, that group just holds a lot of influence right now. So what are we hearing from them? Well, Speaker Mike Johnson, he's the leader of the House Republican Caucus, obviously, and he's new on the job, right? He's about 90 days in, and he's relied on his sort of early days goodwill to set a bipartisan top-line spending target, which was a big deal in negotiations with other congressional leaders, and keep the lights on with these short-term bills. But both moves really kind of irked his anti-compromise members, folks like Chip Roy of Texas. Here's Roy speaking out against the funding bill that they passed last night on the House floor. This continuing resolution will fund your government at the same level as last year's massive omnibus spending bill that all my Republican colleagues, with the exception of two in this chamber, were adamantly opposed to, and they're going to vote for it. And look, if Roy gets frustrated enough, he can join with a group of just three or four other Republicans and vote with Democrats to fire Johnson and throw the chamber back into chaos. You'll probably remember something like that happening this fall. So Johnson is busy balancing their demands while still coming up with bills Biden could sign. That's a really hard ask. And so far, it's just been these spending bills, the short-term bills that have been possible. So what, till March, right, to work on funding? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, March 1st and March 8th are the two deadlines. But they're also working on other stuff, too. Immigration, Ukraine deal, a lot going on. 
Yeah, so it's right now separate from the funding negotiations, but the Senate is working on an immigration and Ukraine aid deal. And in all the ways the House hasn't been working toward compromise, the Senate really has been. But even if the Senate does get a deal done, right, the question is back to the House, where Speaker Mike Johnson has so far backed his faction of anti-compromise folks, and he controls what comes up for a vote. So unless he has a change of heart and is willing to put forward a compromise deal, I'd say immigration reform is probably still going to stagnate. And that's been the story in Congress for more than three decades at this point. The last reform was 1986. Yeah, it doesn't sound, I mean, I'd like to be positive about stuff, Eric, but it doesn't sound like there's going to be a lot of hope of getting (laughs) any more legislating done this year, right? I think it's fair to anticipate a (laughs) stunningly unproductive year in terms of legislation. So a lot to come. That's NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Eric, thanks. Thank you, Abe. Mayors from across the country are in Washington, D.C. this week for the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting. They're sharing their priorities with lawmakers and the Biden administration. And here at Morning Edition, we've used it as an opportunity to spend the week speaking to different mayors from across the country about their goals for their cities. Today, Jerem Wagner is in studio with me. He's a Republican and the mayor of Caldwell, Idaho. It's a suburb of Boise and is home to about 65,000 people. Good morning, Mayor, and thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So Caldwell, for people who don't know, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country. Your background is in city planning. How do you think about how to accommodate growth in your city? Yeah, and that's true. That's, you know, one of the biggest issues that we have is how do we accommodate that? As you mentioned, we are one of the fastest growing cities in the country, yeah. um, seeing just a huge influx of people coming in. And so really rely on that background. As you mentioned, you know, I'm a former planner. Um, and so it's a great time to have a planner at the home leaving yes. the city of Caldwell. And so we really want to incorporate, you know, be a very welcoming city to those mm-hmm. coming in, providing the necessary infrastructure for those needs. You know, transportation is huge, you know, streets, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So just relying on that background, the understanding of of, you know, growth is good, but it does need to be managed and controlled in a way that's benefit for everybody in the in the community. So how do you do that? I mean, you've been in office for two years now. If, I mean, this sounds like one of your top priorities. If you could spell out a little bit the priorities you came in with and how you actually accomplish things like accommodating growth in a, in a positive way for your city. Yeah. And, you know, one of the top priorities was, you know, Caldwell has always been a wonderful community yeah. and people love to be there. And there's a lot of people that have lived there for a long time, uh, such as myself. And so, you know, it's how do you you, you know, do that flux between the people coming in that want to be there and the ones that maybe don't want to see it grow as much as it has. And mm. so it's a delicate balance between those two, but just providing, you know, the wonderful community is continuing with that kind of that, you know, that down home feel that you have when you come to Caldwell and maintaining that. And it, it truly is possible, uh, regardless of the population that you have, creating community centers, um, little places for people to go and feel like, you know, they know the people that are there. That's an important part. When you're going through downtown, you see somebody you know. You can say hi, where it's a shop owner or somebody visiting or down doing whatever it may be. That just helps create that sense of community. And that's what we try to, to strive to maintain throughout how much growth we've had. Now, you're in D.C. meeting with people in the Biden administration, lawmakers. What are you asking of them to help with the priorities you've laid out here for your city, for your residents? Yeah, you know, one of the big priorities that I have as well is with our youth, um, you know, mm-hmm. our growing generation. You know, they're the ones that are going to be leading us in the future. And there's some great programs out there. I know one of the ones that I'm proud to be a part of is the Mayor's Alliance um, to End Childhood Hunger. So that's important for that. And then another is our, the TRIO program that helps provide, you know, federal funding for those programs for high schools to help kids to go on to college. Those 
first first generation students that their parents didn't have the opportunity to go to college, and that comes a lot from that federal funding. So those are really important parts, you know, of my program of what I want to do as a mayor is give those opportunities to you know those kids that didn't in the past and to make sure that they can be successful for the future. Now this is an election year, and you're here speaking to administration to an administration that maybe the same come upcoming or not. Um, whatever administration does take office as Caldwell's mayor, um, what do you think about for continuity to, help, uh, to think about the federal government helping your city accomplish its goals, including what you just described? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, the relationships is really important. That's a big part of, you know, being here for this, uh, U the U.S. Conference of Mayors and, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that we have that open dialogue between the city and the federal government. Sometimes you have that disconnect because you have that st the state right in between that sometimes misses the locals. Uh, but, you know, nothing hits the, the road like the rubber to the road like a local government. And so making sure we keep those connections there whoever is in office at that federal level, uh, you know, regardless of the president, we're still going to have, you know, our state representative or state legislators, our federal legislators working towards those goals. So maintaining that relationship, I think, is really key. So they understand and know the needs of a community like Caldwell. That's Jerem Wagoner, mayor of Caldwell, Idaho. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Appreciate it. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report explains why some electric vehicle owners are discovering that their cars don't charge as quickly in cold winter temperatures. It's 842. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For the second time this week, we're expecting snow in the region. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now with the details. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Rupa. So when does this snow start? So the snow is going to move in by mid to late morning, but I just want to point out that this is going to be mainly a nuisance and very low impact event. Some flurries will start as early as late morning and then continue through the afternoon, wrapping things up during the evening hours, very low accumulations. And even in the city of Boston, we're maybe looking at a coating of snow, so not a huge deal. Okay, so where do you expect it to be the heaviest, although it doesn't sound like you expect it to be heavy at all overall? Right. So the South Shore to Cape Cod, there may be as much as a couple inches of accumulation. So, you know, a couple inches is still enough that some of the road treatments will be out and you'll need to shovel and move it around. It'll be pretty fluffy and easy to manage. And I think most of the accumulation will occur during the late afternoon to evening hours. So that may create some slippery travel for places like Route 6, you know, down on the South Shore, Route 53 for a brief period during the late afternoon and evening hours. And what do you think for accumulations? I think I'd probably one to two inches, but there may be as much as three. You know, coming in off the ocean, there may be a little bit of ocean enhancement. So there may be a couple communities, particularly from southern Plymouth County to the Upper Cape right near the canal that may come up with an isolated three inch amount. But I think for most of us, this is a one to two inch event for the South Shore and Cape and the remainder of the region. It's mainly some scattered coatings here or there. Could you go into that a little bit more? Because I heard that it was going to be really cold. 
So the cold air is really the big story, Rupa, and you're right about that. So the storm is passing to our south, uh, so the heaviest snow is going to be mainly to our south, but this opens the door to the chilly air mass to come in. So overnight tonight, the temperatures are going to drop back into the teens and single digits. Add on top of that the fact that the wind's going to be gusting to 25 miles per hour. Oh, it's going to be brutal. The wind chill goes probably about five below zero to five above zero this evening, tonight, into tomorrow morning and highs won't get out of the low 20s tomorrow. So this is the coldest air we've had so far this season. It will ease up a little bit on Sunday. Sun's gonna be back out and we should be up around 30 on Sunday afternoon. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thank you very much. Thanks, Rupa. There's just four days to go until the New Hampshire primary. The race now appears to be a contest between the front runner, former President Donald Trump, and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. As WBWAR's Anthony Brooks reports, Haley is hoping to rebound in New Hampshire following a disappointing third-place finish in the Iowa caucuses. Wow! Look at this room! Don't you people have jobs? No, I'm just kidding. That is great. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu kicked off a packed town hall event in Hollis yesterday morning. Sununu is Haley's biggest cheerleader in the state and says she can beat Trump next Tuesday and challenge his iron grip on the Republican Party. We've moved this to a two-person race. The whole country is watching. They're waiting for New Hampshire to get it right. It's not quite a two-person race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is still in it, but he's been polling in the single digits in New Hampshire. And after a distant second-place finish in Iowa, he's looking ahead, already spending time in South Carolina. So Haley has a chance to catch Trump. She says the choice for voters next Tuesday is her or more of the same. More of the same is the fact that over 70% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans don't want to see two 80-year-olds battling it out for president. Haley, at 51, says she's a new generational leader. She's a staunch conservative, a former Tea Party governor of South Carolina who served as Trump's U.N. ambassador. And while she only goes so far in criticizing her former boss, she says she would lead in a very different way. At the end of the day, it's the drama and the vengeance and the vindictiveness that we want to get out of the way. To win, Haley needs the support of voters like Carol and Larry DeHaven of Hollis. They're both independents who supported Biden in 2020 and opposed Trump at all costs. Carol DeHaven has made up her mind to vote for Haley. I'm hoping that people will take into consideration Trump's history, especially recent, and see that she's the better choice than Trump. I think she can beat Trump. And this is Larry DeHaven, who's still undecided. He says he's considering Haley, but he wants more assurance that she represents a clean break from Trump. People are afraid of an autocracy, and you've already heard from Trump that that's exactly what he wants to do. She needs to uh, really let people know that this is their chance to save a democracy. For his part, Trump has ping-ponged this week between court appearances in New York and rallies in New Hampshire. He's facing defamation charges, along with 91 criminal indictments across four other cases, which he actually bragged about at a rally in the town of Atkinson. I got so many court cases. I've been indicted more than Alphonse Capone. You know who Alphonse <laughs> Haley's challenge is serious enough that Trump is hitting back, attacking her campaign on a number of fronts, accusing her of being supported by rhinos, Republicans in name only.
They're not going to win anyway. They're not even close. But they're going to load it up with Democrats and independents. And that's not what the Republican Party is about. Trump has been touting his victory in Iowa and urging his backers to get to the polls next week. Brian Nado of Raymond says he's supporting Trump because he likes his tough approach on immigration. Bringing people in to the country the legal way, the right way, and not just opening the borders. Look at New York City, it's a mess. What are we going to do with all these people? Trump hopes a win next Tuesday will help him lock up the nomination. If Haley can't catch him in a moderate state like New Hampshire, it will get even more difficult for her in the states that vote next. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with coverage of a press conference by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, where he rejected U.S. requests for Palestinian sovereignty, saying Israel needs to control needs control over all of the West Bank and Gaza for its national security. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Sargent College. Advance your career with an MS in nutrition in two semesters. Priority deadline, February 15th. bu.edu slash sergeant. Ecuador is facing a crisis of drug gang violence. One young migrant says he walked for 21 days to escape to the U.S. I'm Ari Shapiro, an immigrant's American dream and the reality on the ground, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. A new report from the Justice Department finds critical failures by law enforcement during the 2022 Uvalde, Texas school shooting. Congressional lawmakers avoid a government shutdown with the passage of a short-term spending bill. And cold air moving east will plunge much of the country into sub-freezing temperatures for the rest of the week. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Upper 20s today with a chance of flurries and light snow beginning around late morning. A coating is possible for Boston while the South Shore and Cape could see 1 to 2 inches. Tonight it falls to the low teens and tomorrow it will be very cold, as you just heard, with temperatures only in the upper teens and the wind making it feel below zero. Sunny on Sunday in the upper 20s, it's 25 degrees in Boston. I guess we'll just cross that budget when we come to it. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at betterment.com. Investing involves risk. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. 
We are four months into the federal government's new fiscal year, and Congress still does not have a budget. It has at least managed to delay a crisis, though, passing a stopgap funding measure to keep the government from partially shutting down this weekend. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Lawmakers bought themselves a few more weeks to draft a full budget agreement that adheres to a $1.7 trillion deal reached between House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The two sides still have to work out the details. In bipartisan votes, the House and Senate yesterday approved their third stopgap funding measure in four months, extending current funding levels into March with two new deadlines affecting different parts of the government, March 1st and March 8th. Meanwhile, House conservatives are pushing for spending cuts and more funding to enforce the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. The average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage has been falling for several months now, hitting 6.75% last week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. And this week, Fannie Mae is predicting rates could drop below 6% this year. Now, lower mortgage rates might ordinarily mean more demand, which would mean higher home prices. But this time, maybe not. Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. A big factor that could keep home prices from rising too much is if housing supply increases. Generally, I expect inventory to rise in 2024 from anemic levels. That's Odetta Kushi at First American. She says one way that could happen is if mortgage rates drop low enough to encourage existing homeowners with really cheap mortgages to sell. You know, I don't expect a, a drastic increase in existing home inventory, but certainly a, a trickle of existing home inventory as rates continue to come down. A bigger factor that's already been increasing inventory is new construction, says Charlie Doherty, senior economist at Wells Fargo. Single family construction has been improving as demand has returned and as mortgage rates have moved lower. But Doherty says demand is coming off really low levels. And if the economy continues to slow down, then housing demand in general should continue to be fairly sluggish. And that would keep a lid on home prices too. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. Walmart said it's going to raise the average salary and bonus for store managers in the U.S. starting next month. Average hourly wage will be $18 an hour. Walmart stock is down two-tenths percent in pre-market trading. Let's see how the rest of the market's doing. Let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the four to six-tenths percent range with Dow futures up 162 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.162 percent. And social media platform Reddit is getting ready to launch an IPO in March. According to Reuters, it plans to sell 10% of its shares. Back in 2021, Reddit was valued at $10 billion. TBD on what its IPO valuation will be. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. And by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager enables quick and easy logins through biometric unlock and password autofill. More at Bitwarden.com. It is horrifically cold in much of the country right now. And in those places, some electric vehicle owners may be going through their first cold winter with their new cars and discovering that they aren't charging as quickly or holding charge as long. In Chicago this week, there have been long lines of Tesla drivers waiting for a charger and some cars' batteries running out 
before it was their turn. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. You know how when you put honey in the fridge and it gets cold, it moves a lot more slowly? Dan Steingart at Columbia says that's basically what happens to batteries when they get cold, too, including the ones in electric cars. The ions that have to move from one side of the battery to the other side of the battery to give us the power we need also slow down significantly. Most of the time, he says, this doesn't change how EVs run. Because the car works very hard to keep the battery at a consistent temperature. So if you keep the car plugged in overnight, in particular, if you keep the car plugged in in a garage, you shouldn't really notice this. But if you can't keep it in a garage or plugged in at night and it gets really cold out, you're going to notice. For one thing, Graham Evans at S&P Global Mobility says the car is going to take longer to charge. There's definitely this kind of sweet spot for a battery to operate somewhere in the region of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So if the car has been sitting outside in the cold overnight, when people are trying to charge, first thing they plug in, they try and receive a very high power level of charge. The vehicle will struggle to receive the charge. The other thing that happens to EVs when it's really cold out is that they lose range, says Gil Tal at UC Davis. And it's losing range both because the battery is too cold to give the optimal performance and also because we use energy to heat the car, to heat the cabin, to heat ourselves. So if you normally get 400 miles out of a full battery charge, you might only get two or 300 miles, depending on the car and how cold it is. And there is no way around it. We just need to plan for it. For now, Tal says, that's the solution. If you know it's going to be very cold, find a way to plug the car in or be prepared for charging to take longer. Dan Steingart at Columbia says engineers, including in his lab, are working on this. Batteries beforehand were designed to work near and around room temperature because our laptops and our phones were either inside or in our pockets near us, and and we like to be at room temperature. So batteries were optimized for that fairly narrow range. But now that we're increasingly using these kinds of batteries in things like cars that need to operate when it's really hot and when it's really cold, It's the new frontier of battery engineering to make it so that batteries are happier at multiple temperatures. And Steingart expects there will be a lot of progress on this front in the next 10 years. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietinen. Our engineers are Justin Dooler and Becca Weinman. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.